why do we die? I don't mean heart disease or cancer or stepping in front of a bus. I mean, how come you got to die? I mean, if you were making it up, would you make it up that you die? I mean, think about it. You get born. That's pretty traumatic. And then you got to do the diaper thing. That's not any fun. Finally, you start to have fun. They ship you off to school. Right? You do what? 12, 16, 20 years. You get out of school and they put you to work. You work for 40 years and finally, finally you can have some fun and you die. I mean, are, are, are we not doing something we're supposed to be doing? I mean, what if we hung a lot of crystals in the windows and then... Now, they already did that in California. They're still dying. Maybe we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. Do you realize that 90% of the people that ever ate food are dead? So maybe if we... No, that's not going to work either. One thing's for sure. You get born, you die. You don't get born, you don't die. It would appear that birth is a necessary and sufficient condition for death. Of course, that only raises the question, why do we get born? I don't mean the gleam in your father's eye. I mean, why bother being born if you're going to be wind up dead? Being born's a popular thing to do, like everybody I know did it. In the spring, it's really popular. The birds are doing it. The bees are doing it. Birth happening all over the place. There seems to be this urge in nature to become, to get born. And then eventually, you wind up dead. This becoming urge, where does that come from? Well, this didn't used to be a building, Right? Used to be just some grass and some wood and some metal and some glass, probably out here or maybe back there. And then they stuck it together. And when it's together, it became a building. So becoming seems to have something to do with things sticking together, clinging together. Clinging leads to becoming. Becoming leads to birth, which leads to death. So, clinging. What about this clinging? What do you cling to? Think about the things you're clinging to in your life. Well, the things you cling to are the things you really wanted. I mean, once you get the things you really want, you want to hang on to them. That's where the clinging comes from. So, if you don't really want it, eh, you know, you're not going to cling to it. I mean, somebody gives you, what, a fruitcake for Christmas? And you're like, a fruitcake, right? You, you don't really want it. You weren't craving any fruitcake, right? And somebody comes along and they say, oh, man, I love fruitcake. You're like, you want fruitcake? Here, have some fruitcake, right? You're not clinging. You give it away real easy. But if it's something you really want, oh, then you're going to cling to it. So craving leads to clinging, and clinging leads to becoming and birth and death. Well, craving, 
Where does craving come from? Well, what do you crave? Ice cream? Why, why do you crave the ice cream? I mean, chocolate ice cream. You crave it because it's got a brown color. <laughs> no, you're not craving it because of that. You crave it because you pay money for it. No, you're paying money for it because you crave it. Uh, you crave it because it produces pleasant Vedana. Right? When that pleasant Vedana is produced, it's like, oh, good, I'll have another bite and another bite. Oh, I think I'll have seconds. Right? Or you're in the grocery store and you're walking along and it's like ice cream. The memory of pleasant Vedana. Ooh, into the basket. You get home, maybe you put away the milk, maybe not. Off comes the carton, right? So the craving is due to the pleasant Vedana. Sometimes we crave for the absence of something if the Vedana it's producing is unpleasant. You know, that person sitting next to you who's breathing all loud and funny, it's producing the unpleasant Vedana, not the sound Vedana. Your mind going, ah, why does he do that? Right? Can't he go? right? And you're craving for him to shut up. Right? And when he shuts up, you're like, oh, please stay like that. Right? You're clinging to the quiet. Right? So the Vedna, clinging if it's good, leads to craving and then clinging, or craving to not have and keep it away. That clinging leads to becoming birth and death. All right, so the Vedna. The Vedna that leads to the craving. Where do the Vedna come from? Well, when you're in the grocery store, there's no Vedna causing craving. Well, maybe this is the memory of the Vedna, but the real Vedna, no, it's not happening. It's not happening when it's in your basket. It's not happening when it's sitting on the table. It's not happening when it's in the bowl. It's not even happening when it's on the spoon. The real Vedna happens when the ice cream hits the tongue. Contact. Contact is followed by Vedana. And that Vedana, if you're not careful, it'll lead to craving, clinging, becoming birth. Old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of the dukkha. So these contacts that produce all this Vedana, where does contact come from? Well, <laughs> you got senses hanging out in the environment. You got five external senses and you got the mind, which is a sixth sense. They're hanging out in the environment and you're going to get sense contacts. Whether you want it or not, sometimes. I mean, you're sitting here, you're meditating away, and then somebody outside starts making some noise. You didn't want that sense contact and you can't turn it off. Now, you can close your eyes so you can sort of turn off that sense contact, but you can't really close your ears and you know you're walking along and suddenly there's a horrible smell you, you can pinch your nose but you know you put something in your mouth that you expect to taste one way and it tastes another way and you can't go oh I think I'll have it taste different right your senses were just hanging out there and this is what they got and your mind oh, 
You've probably noticed it's rather difficult to turn it off. It's just going to be thinking. It's going to be getting sense contacts all the time. So the senses, these six senses that are hanging out there in the environment, they're getting the contacts. The contacts are producing the Vedana. The Vedana, that's going to lead to craving, clinging, becoming, birth, death. What about these senses? Well, <laughs> they're part of being alive. They're part of having a mind and body. A mind and body without any senses, well, it'd be senseless because you'd be dead pretty quick. Uh, it just doesn't work. You need the senses so that you can interact with the environment and get the things that are necessary to sustain the mind and the body. This is how you determine it's too hot, it's too cold, you're hungry, you're thirsty. Right? Don't walk into the tree. Right? So you're using your senses to navigate your environment so that you can remain alive. And those senses are getting sense contacts which produce Vedana, craving, clinging, becoming birth, death. What about this mind and body? <clears throat> well, it's dependent on you being conscious. If you have a mind and body and it's not conscious and it stays that way, it's a pretty serious condition. You're in a coma and you'll wind up dead. You've got you to gotta come back to consciousness fairly regularly. It's okay for a few hours every night. Right? In fact, it's a requirement. But that consciousness has to be there. So mind and body is dependent on consciousness. And the senses are dependent on there being a mind and body for them to be embedded in. And contact, of course, is dependent upon there being senses that have those contacts. And the Vedana arise when the contacts are taking place. And if you're not careful, you'll get caught up in craving, which will lead to clinging, becoming birth, death. What about consciousness? Well, consciousness appears to arise as a result of interaction of mind and body. Uh, you got a body, but no mind, no consciousness. We call that being dead, right? right? And you got a mind and no body. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience with that. I mean, you guys might. This is England. You've got lots of ghosts around, right? But, uh, you know, we don't really encounter disembodied minds very often. So really, if you get right down to it, mind and body have to interact. That produces consciousness, which is necessary for mind and body to interact. These are interdependent the mind and the body and the consciousness are leaning on each other. You pull away either one of them and the other falls over as well. Having a conscious mind and body, it means you've got senses that are out there in the world receiving contacts, producing Vedana. And if you're not careful, that's going to be that craving, clinging, becoming birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of the dukkha. This is dependent origination. Paticca Samuppada. Sariputta quotes the Buddha as having said, he who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. 
He who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. This is the essence of the Dhamma. This is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. There's a sutta in the Long Discourses, number 15, the Great Discourse on Origination. And at the start of that sutta, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, comes to the Buddha and salutes him, sits down at one side, and says, Venerable Sir, this dependent origination appears to me as very deep and very profound, and yet it also appears as clear as clear can be. And the Buddha says, do not say so, Ananda. By not penetrating this dependent origination, this is how people fall into all the dukkha they're experiencing. And then what follows is a teaching on dependent origination. Much like what I just presented in the so-called reverse order, starting with death and looking at what causes, what's... What is death dependent upon? It's dependent upon birth. And then what is birth dependent upon? Becoming and working backwards. In the Samyutta Nikaya, there is, this is the thematic discourses, the connected discourses. And there is a book there, book 12, on dependent origination, and there are right about a hundred suttas on dependent origination. Number 65, the Buddha says that the night of his enlightenment, he was sitting there pondering, why do we die? Remember his original question, what do we do about old age, sickness, and death? Right? That's why he left home. This is what he wanted to know. And so he's made this vow. Remember, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree. Sujata is giving him this rice milk that was so good. And he's made the vow to sit there until he figures it out or his flesh rots from his bones. So he enters the jhanas, practices the supernormal power of remembering past lives, then of seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And then... (coughs) He's got to get down to answering the question. Why do we die? Well, because we're born. And he works backwards through these ten links. Often, however, you find dependent origination discussed as having twelve links. Two more are added at the beginning. Ignorance and sankharas. The most famous teaching of the 12 links of dependent origination is probably the Tibetan wheel of life. This is a a big circle that's being held by Yama, the lord of death. He's a fairly fearsome creature. You can see his fangs coming over the top of the circle at the 12 o'clock position. And then at 10 and 2, you see his claws And then down at five and seven, he's got his feet grasping it and his tail switching back and forth at six. And on the circle are a number of concentric rings. In the center, in the bullseye position, there's a rooster, a snake, and a pig, each biting the tail of the other. 
The rooster is greed, the snake is hatred, and the pig is delusion. The next circle depicts various beings coming out of states of woe up to very nice states and then descending again to states of woe, the wheel of samsara. The next circle is usually the biggest one, the one where the artist has the most fun, and it depicts the six realms of existence. The lowest section is the hell realms. The hell realms are depicted in ways that Dante would be proud of. Okay, I mean, really all the gruesome stuff, people boiled in oil and chewed by monsters, the whole nine yards. Above that is the realm of the hungry ghosts. These are beings that in their previous incarnation were very greedy, and now they have been reborn in a realm where they have giant bellies and little tiny necks and they can never get enough. And then there's also the warring gods, the asuras. These are beings that are fighting all the time. It appears that they own a five-sided building just south of Washington, D.C. <laughs> Above that, we've got the animal realm, the realm that we know besides our human realm. And the artist has fun painting deer and rabbits and birds and, you know, all the animals. Then there's the human realm, our realm. And again, the artist paints people doing various things, farming and weaving and, you know, all the occupations. And then finally at the top are the various god realms. There are, what, 27 god realms? Uh, and they're all depicted, you know, the usual way, eating banquets of ambrosia and sitting on clouds playing harps and well they didn't have harps but playing various musical instruments but the important ring is the outermost ring and in that ring are the 12 links of dependent origination up at the top is ignorance avijja depicted as an old blind person trying to make their way through the forest Difficult to know where to go, what to do. Dependent on ignorance are sankharas. Sankara is a very interesting term. It has many different meanings. It's sometimes translated as mental formations. We had that. Uh, and refers to thoughts and emotions. It's sometimes translated as compounded things. Uh, created things. Often in dependent origination, it's translated as karmic formations. <clears throat> but the Buddha, he only used the word sankara. He didn't have all these other words. And probably the best translation would be concoctions or fabrications. Something that's made. But also with that hint of not quite true. Oh, he came home last night really late and he concocted some story about a flat tire, right? A concoction, something that's made up, or a fabrication. So these sankharas are not quite really the deepest truth of what's going on because they're dependent on ignorance. Now, <clears throat> 
the sankaras are depicted as a potter sitting at a wheel making pots. Some of the pots are very beautiful, some are misshapen, some are broken. So our creations, and it does include our karmic intentions, some are good and some are kind of broken and messed up. Dependent upon sankara is consciousness. You are conscious of created things, right? I mean, try and be conscious and not be conscious of anything. Uh, doesn't work. I mean, if you're not conscious of anything, which is different from being conscious of nothing, right? When you're conscious of nothing, you're conscious of, you know, the empty biscuit jar, nothing. But just be conscious and there's no object of consciousness. It doesn't work. So our consciousness is dependent upon concoctions, be they mental stories we're telling ourselves or creation, things we have been created or, you know, whatever. Consciousness is depicted as a monkey swinging through the trees, grabbing first one limb and then the next. You might have encountered this monkey mind at some point in the recent past, perhaps. Then there's mind and body. Mind and body is depicted as two people in a boat. One is standing up and pulling the boat along. One is lying prone as it's just along for the ride. One of them is mind, one of them is body. Which one's which? Uh, this is actually an important insight, one of the first insights in the, the 16 insight knowledges, delineation of mind and body, understanding what is mind and what is body, how they interact, and most importantly, who's in charge. This is an insight that you can contemplate, get Get concentrated and then investigate your mind and investigate your body. See how they interact and figure out who's in charge, who's deciding which way the boat goes. All right? I'm not going to give you the answer. I'll leave you the fun of contemplating it. So, dependent on mind and body are the senses. This is depicted as a house with five windows and a door, the five external senses, the door representing the mind. Then, dependent on the senses, is contact. Contact is a couple embracing. Dependent upon contact is Vedana. Vedana is depicted as a man having arrows shot into his eyes. Unpleasant Vedana. <laughs> dependent upon Vedana is craving. Craving is an enormously fat person sitting at a table... It's laden with lots of food. Dependent upon craving is clinging. Clinging is depicted as uh, someone picking fruit and putting it into baskets that are so full that the new fruit simply rolls off onto the ground. Dependent upon clinging is becoming, and that's depicted as a pregnant woman. Dependent upon becoming is birth, and that's a mother with an infant. And then dependent upon birth is death, and that's depicted as a corpse. 
Now, there are a number of interpretations of dependent origination, and the one that's presented in the Vasudhimaga and is probably the most well-known one is the so-called three lives model of dependent origination, that these 12 links, these 12 steps, are over three lifespans, the first lifespan being your previous life, and that's the ignorance and the sankharas, which is given as karmic formations. So in your previous life, out of ignorance, you acted in certain ways, and the karma, the actions you do, have results which result in this particular life, this life with its consciousness, mind and body, senses, contacts, vedna, cravings and clingings. That's the current life. And then the future life is becoming birth and death. There's just a couple problems with the three lives model. Uh, One, the Buddha probably never intended such an interpretation. That's a problem. Two, it logically doesn't make any sense because frequently the Buddha says that if you can uproot the ignorance, then you uproot the sankharas, and then if you uproot the sankharas, you uproot the consciousness. And So if you remove the ignorance, you remove everything else, and then there's no more dukkha, right? So uprooting ignorance leads to the end of dukkha. But the ignorance is in your previous life. So how are you going to uproot the ignorance of your previous life when you can't even remember your previous life, let alone go back and change it or anything? Seems like there's a problem there. I think this is because, okay, maybe the Buddha was talking about a two-lives model, right? So the, the death dependent on birth, dependent upon becoming is one life and all the others are the previous life, you could make a pretty good case for that being so. But I think actually the interpretation put forth by Ajahn Buddha Dasa may be the most helpful one. And that's to look at dependent origination as a moment-to-moment happening, not over two lifetimes or three lifetimes, but really all the links occurring with every sense contact. We'll take a look at that. All right, as an example. Let's say you've never had a mango. You've heard about mangoes, and one day you go to the grocery store, and in the produce section, there's a sign saying mangoes, and you're like, oh, I've heard about mangoes. They're supposed to be good. And there's this funny-looking fruit, and you think, oh, I'll buy a mango. So you buy a mango, and you take it home. And you figure out you've got to peel it. And, of course, you make a big mess because that's what happens the first time you peel a mango. right? And then you cut off a piece, and now you've got a piece of mango here. You are conscious you've got a mind and body. You've got working senses, contact. Vedna, ooh, pleasant Vedna, ooh, craving, I'll have another bite and another bite and another bite. This is good, I'm going to get me some more mangoes. In fact, my friends, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they've never had a mango. I'm going to turn them on to mangoes. 
You have just given birth to the mango bringer. And you go see your friends and you turn them on to mangoes and they're like, great, oh, this is wonderful, thank you. And the next time you go see your friends, you bring a mango and they're like, great, oh, thank you for the mango. And the next time you bring a mango, they're like, oh, another mango. (laughs) And the next time you bring a mango, they're like, what's with the mangoes? Uh Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer. What's happening is, based on your sensory input and your cravings and clingings, you're creating your sense of self. It's not your physical birth that's happening with every sense contact. It's the birth of the self. When you crave, there's a sense of the craver. And when you cling, there's an even stronger sense of the clinger, me, I own it, mine. At first, at the craving stage, I want it. And at the clinging, I got it and I'm going to keep it. And this, the word that I'm translating as becoming is bhava, which could be being and having. So now I have this thing I'm craving. I have become the one who owns it. And you just gave birth to yourself, your ego, as this one. But because your ego is rather fragile, it keeps dying on you. And you've got to think it or emote it up again. So looking at dependent origination moment to moment is probably the deepest and most important way to look at it. Now... This spinning of this wheel of dependent origination leads to dukkha. Old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of the dukkha. And the Buddha's teaching is about the end of dukkha. And there are two ways to work on this. One is when there's a sense contact and it produces vedana, don't go any further. Don't go into the craving. It's not much you can do before that. I mean, you're conscious. You got a mind and body. Your senses are hanging out in the environment. You're inevitably going to get contacts, and the contacts are going to produce the Vedana, which are not really under your control. As I mentioned this morning, that's happening in the old brain, the reptilian structure. It's only after the Vedna that you have some opportunity to control what comes next. The craving isn't inevitable. Some of these links, it's inevitable. In other words, if you get born, it's inevitable you're going to die. Right? But you get a pleasant Vedna, it's not inevitable that you're going to crave. What comes next is perception. That's not even mentioned in dependent origination. And then the mental formations. Sankara again, the thinking and emoting about this sense contact that produced this Vedana. Some of the thinking and emoting is no problem. It's only when it gets into the I gotta have it, I gotta keep it, the craving sets in, or I gotta get rid of it, I gotta keep it away. That's where it gets to be a problem. This is why the second foundation of mindfulness is to pay attention to your Vedana, so that when you experience a pleasant Vedana, you know it, and you're right there in that gap between the Vedana and the onset of the craving, and you can actually deal with it. You can enjoy the pleasant Vedana and just leave it at enjoying the pleasant Vedana.
you can experience the unpleasant Vedana and do what's necessary based on the unpleasant Vedana without falling into craving and clinging. This is the strategy on a sense contact by sense contact basis. It's a lot of work because we get a lot of sense contacts, but you need to be in there every time checking because the craving comes up and when it comes up, it's going to lead to dukkha. We don't really seem to be able to pull that off all the time. Sometimes, yeah, good, diminish your dukkha. You know, experience it, enjoy it, let it go. But a long-term strategy is to go back to the very beginning and uproot the ignorance. Because without the ignorance, then there's not the sankharas, and without the sankharas, there's no consciousness, no mind and body, etc. Now that sounds a bit like annihilation, but really what it's saying is that without the ignorance, this whole tendency to wind up in this craving and clinging just isn't there. The key thing is to uproot that sense of self that is the craver and the clinger. This deep understanding that this feeling of self is simply an illusion. To penetrate that illusion to such an extent that you don't conceive of a self. Just like you stop conceiving of the edge of the world, you go to the beach, you look, you see, but you don't conceive of the edge of the world. Can you get to the same thing about all of the stuff that normally generates the sense of I, the sense of me, the most important creature in the universe? This is the uprooting of the ignorance. And then the whole thing falls apart. And furthermore, it's taken care of forever. So the insight path, the path that we're working on is a path that helps us get in at the stage of the Vedana and experience it without getting caught in the craving. That's the short-term solution. And the long-term solution is to get enough insight so that actually we do penetrate the delusion of self and uproot that ignorance. Now, dependent origination is laid out in a linear fashion. Because this is an oral tradition, the teaching comes out one word after another. And so it appears as though this is linear. But I would suggest that, as I said the first night, the teachings of the Buddha are actually holographic. Looking at them only linearly misses some of the depth. And particularly, the teaching of dependent origination has multi-dimensions. If we take some of these steps there, some of these points, for example, consciousness. Consciousness is mentioned as the third one in the 12 links, right? Ignorance, sankharas, consciousness, right? So it shows up there. But it required consciousness actually to have the sense contact. Remember, sense contact is the coming together of the sense organ, the sense object, and consciousness. So consciousness is there in the sense contact. Consciousness is there in the craving and the clinging. Consciousness is there at birth. 
whether it's the birth of the ego or the birth of the physical being. So consciousness is happening in multiple places, even though it's only mentioned once. Same thing with Sankara. Created things, compounded things, concoctions. That's happening in step two, but your mind and body, that's a concoction as well. It's a created thing. That's a sankara. Your senses are sankaras. Your craving and clingings are mental formations, sankaras. So sankara is occurring multiple times in here as well. So it's presented linearly, but it helps to see it in a more holographic way. One way I like to think of it is like a telescope. You know, you got three parts to the telescope. You can squish it down, it gets small, or you can extend it out. So when you've got the 12 links, you've extended out the telescope, but you can squish it down. And on the inside, you have those first two links of out of ignorance, we concoct the world. This is a table, right? You look at this. You know it's a table. Well, actually, you are ignoring the fact that this used to be trees. And somebody cut down the trees and then they made it into this nice wood and then they assembled it into this table. But eventually, this table is going to be worn out. It'll be just firewood. And then it'll be burned and it'll be carbon dioxide, which some trees will breathe. So when you concoct this as a table, you are ignoring its full history. The fact that it's changing all the time. Changing slowly, but you're ignoring that. So anytime you concoct something, you're missing some of the bigger picture. So that's the inside part. The middle part is the consciousness, mind and body, the senses, the sense contacts, the vedna, the craving, the clinging. That's sort of the inside part of what goes on when we're concocting the world out of ignorance. And then the outside part is the becoming birth and death. So there was this urge to become, we got born, and eventually we're going to die. But inside of this, between the becoming, the birth, and the death... There is this life full of sense contacts, vedna, cravings, and clingings. And inside of that, there's the concocting the world out of ignorance. So look at it telescoped. I've only scratched the surface of dependent origination. There are many teachings on dependent origination, and the next two nights we'll look at some more of them. But maybe this will give you a sense of what the basics are. And maybe you have some questions or comments. Right, yeah, that you have to keep thinking yourself up or emoting yourself up. Because the ego is it's not a solid thing. The Buddha didn't say there's no self. What he said is, everywhere you look, that's not self. 
So you start trying to pin it down and you can't really find anything solid. The ego appears to be a complex set of thoughts and emotions and memories. And if you don't keep popping it up, propping it up, by defining yourself, I'm this, I own that, I like this, I don't like that, then who am I? Where am I? What's going on? So yeah, the whole ego functioning thing is part of this cycle of dependent origination. The moment to moment... I don't know that he was the first, but he certainly did an excellent job of explaining it in that way. But I suspect it probably was explained by other people that way. And in actuality, there are some suttas that really don't make any sense unless you start moving the interpretation out of the multi-lifetime model into more of a moment-to-moment model. So I think the Buddha was really the first. But uh, it, the interpretation tended in the institution of Buddhism to go into the three lives model. And Buddha Dasa was very adept at going against the institution and pointing out, hey, the Buddha really meant this. He did that in a number of ways. And he wrote one of the best books on dependent origination, But it's so controversial, no Western publisher has ever published it, and you have to order it from Thailand. Uh, There's instructions on my website on the reading list if you want to get it. But it's actually a very good book on dependent origination. Right. He probably set out to try and find a way, yeah, to actually make it not happen. Yeah. Now, you introduced this teaching by saying that Sariputta, either Buddha said Sariputta or Sariputta said, um, if you understand this, you understand the Dharma. If you understand the Dharma, you understand this. Mm-hmm. Now, I like Buddha Dasa's interpretation as you give him a sip. What, what it overcomes is the birth of the self. Mm-hmm. But it also, but it overcomes the dukkha that comes as a result of that. In other words, the unsatisfactoriness of aging, sickness, and death. I mean, the Buddha got sick and died. You know, it happens to the best of us. So, it, right, but right. Right, but it did overcome any problem with that. This is just what happened. And, what, you know, he's like, okay, I'm dying. You got any last questions? Okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> All compounded things are subject to decay. Diligently seek liberation. So, yeah, he's, as he said, he was out to, to overcome dukkha. I mean, he sort of modified it from the taking care of the physical old age, sickness, and death, to dealing with the problem in a way that, you know, didn't produce negative Vedna in the mind. 
you know, the story of the two arrows. The unenlightened one has two arrows that sting them, the body and the mind, but the enlightened one only has the body that stings them. You know, so the Buddha had a bad back. Sometimes he had to go lie down. But it wasn't a problem. It's just that's what was necessary to deal with it. So his solution, as you say, didn't solve the physical problem, but just solve the mental problem. But if you solve the mental problem, I think you've gotten most of the battle taken care of. <laughs> Very good. There are some suttas that mention ten links. There are some suttas that mention nine links, leaving out the senses as a separate link. There are some suttas that mention two, three, four, five links. Uh, the most common is the twelve links. The second most common is the ten links. Do what? Well, yeah, the Buddha actually says that he came up with the ten links on the night of his enlightenment. And I'm guessing that's the original formulation. And then later, the first two links of ignorance and sankharas were added. I'm assuming the Buddha added it as he refined his teachings rather than it was added by, you know, the later tradition. But all indication seems to be that the ten links was the original and then the the extra two links were added later. Enlightenment. Right. Right. Well, instead of a circle, it actually takes you further out. Yeah. I was going to talk about that some tomorrow night. Yeah. Right. The other one. Are you aware of Joanna Macy's book? Yes. Probably the best Western book on dependent origination is Joanna Macy's PhD thesis on dependent origination and systems theory. Very good. So there's one bit there which I kind of been chewing it over. Uh huh. And so it's the aspect of that she thinks it's unique in the Buddha's thinking of mutual causality. So we're used to thinking in terms of linear causality, independence on this that arises. Right. But you, you right at the start gave an example of mutual causality where you have consciousness, mind and body, as one leading to the other. Right. And that bit understood. But then when she's explaining how reality com- comes into being in terms of mutual causality, I completely just 
sense perceptions, I can't see how object and senses work. Right. Yeah. If you stick to just the 12 links that are presented, there's not the mutual causality. But there is the mutual causality in the sense of, okay, is my hand high or low? All right? Well, in order to decide, you've got to decide what's high. Well, the ceiling is high and the floor is low. Right, And so the mutual causality of the generation of the concept of high and the concept of low, you can't have one without the other. So now it's low. Or mutual causality, it's over my head, so it's high. Right. So now your head is where anything above that is high and anything below your head is low. Right. So you had generated both of them at the same time. All of the dualistic stuff that comes along, good, evil, up, down. I mean, is this up? Well, if you're here, it is. But if you're at the other side of the world, I'm pointing down, right? So up and down are generated. But sometimes you can see that it's a relative thing, like with up and down, right? Uh, There's some thing that it's based on, but when you generate one thing, you often generate its opposite as well. And I think that's more what she's aiming at rather than just the 12 links. So when you generate, when you conceive of pleasant Vedana, you're also conceiving of unpleasant Vedana. It's the other possibility. So I think that's what she's addressing there. It's been several years since I read the book. But it's definitely a recommended book. Um, just wondering if you could talk more about the word consciousness because it comes up as one of the five aggregates. Right? Correct. Yeah, vinyana comes up. There's not a poly word that we translate as awareness. The closest thing to awareness is vinyana, but it has. It has different meanings in different contexts. The most common thing is sense consciousness. So there are six of them, one for each of the senses. And that's probably 80% or more of what is referred to when consciousness is being referred to. However, here in dependent origination, it's more consciousness as the animating force, the resultant of the interaction of mind and body. Okay, so body is the hardware, mind is the software, but when you get the program, you get behavior, you get consciousness. So then it's more like uh, consciousness as opposed to unconsciousness or the capacity to be aware, and that's also sometimes how it's used. And sometimes it's used just simply conscious versus unconscious. So you find all of those in there, and it's dependent on the context. There's consciousness, there's citta, heart-mind, there's mano, which is mind, I think. Uh, There's nama, nama rupa is mind and body. Uh, We get name from nama. And so all of those 
have different shades of meaning. And we might refer to them as mind or consciousness, but there's a lot of different shades of meaning. English is pretty good at describing technical things, but not as good with psychological things, and certainly nowhere near as good with spiritual things. So part of it is the limitations of the language we're communicating in. We have an opportunity. Now, whether you can pull it off or not probably depends on the level of your spiritual development, the level of insight that you've had. Um, I mean, if I've got something really heavy on my foot and it hurts really bad, I don't think I can pull off the stopping of the craving to remove it from my foot, okay? Um, but it, it's, it's where we've got a chance to get in there. Uh, and the, the deeper your understanding, then the better chance you have of actually breaking at that point. The stronger your mindfulness, the better chance you have because you can catch it earlier. The closer you catch it to the Vedana before you get all the thoughts and emotions going on it, then the better chance to break it before it gets to the craving. So if you can experience, this is pleasant, how nice. As opposed, this is pleasant, i gotta, I got to get me some more of it. And when I get it, I'm going to keep it. All right? So if you can just, right there with the Vedana, just appreciate it and nothing more. Without the ego forming of I and my relationship to it. No dukkha but it's tricky. And you slap some hard. I mean, you, you, have, you have this thing where your foot damages your foot. You're going to perhaps choose to remove that. Right, I might choose to remove it. So you, you can do that. Well, given that I'm not enlightened, okay. I'm probably going to get upset if I can't remove it. I'm going to experience dukkha. If you are enlightened, you recognize, oh, this should be removed. And if you can't remove it, it's like, oh, that's too bad. It can't be removed. As opposed to me, who's freaking out and some, saying, somebody please call the emergency services. And, right? Might be a good, good idea, but in, it, the freaking out is not helpful. It's easier to see with something positive. All right, so you have a really pleasant experience. Can you just appreciate the pleasant experience without getting lost in, oh, how do I keep this? How do I get more of this pleasant experience? You're, you're with your friend and you're having a really good time. Can you just appreciate being with your friend and having a really good time as opposed to planning next week when we get together? Exactly. Right. If you can go, I'm having such a good time. Wow. As opposed to in that craving and clinging to it. Yeah. Or on retreat. Or on retreat. Yeah. Um, I'm still a bit confused about the difference between craving and 
Maybe, maybe not. Uh, if you want to go on the retreat, and when it comes time to go on the retreat, you're too ill to go on the retreat. Do you just accept, oh, I don't get to go on the retreat, or are you really upset and freaked out and kind of mad at things? So if you can accept the fact that your plan didn't happen and just go, oh, well, it didn't happen, too bad, then there wasn't craving. But if you're getting all freaked out and mad and upset and why me and oh, poor me, and all these bad things happen, you know, you're... You were craving it. So desiring, well, okay, let me say this. When I was at Wat Suan Mok with, at Ajahn Buddha Dasa's place, they talked there about wise wishes and foolish desires. So the wish to go on retreat, the wish to practice the Dharma, that's a wise wish. The foolish desire to have a third helping of ice cream, right? That's not such a good one. So recognizing the difference between those and then recognizing the amount of attachment you have to it. So if it's a foolish desire, you're already in trouble. No matter you know whether it's big or small, it's like not so great. You're putting your energy in the wrong direction, basically. But if it's a wise wish, you could still be in trouble in the fact that you want it so bad, and if you're thwarted, then you're upset. Okay? So part of it is the quality of what it is that you're wishing for. And I'm not saying don't ever wish. I mean, you actually have to put the energy in. You have to make the raft to get to the other side. Right? You've got to put that energy in there. But... Be careful about how much attachment you have to the world unfolding like you're planning for it to unfold, even if it's a wise one. Okay, so is there a danger that people um, in their um, intention to progress along this path can sort of mistake, kind of get disassociated, um, for instance, grief? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, grief feels bad. I'm supposed to be spiritual and not have bad experiences. I'll push this away. Or, I'm a spiritual person. I don't get angry. I'm not mad. <laughs> right? So, yeah, this is a danger. So, it's, it's really important to pay attention. And if you're grieving, it's important to grieve. And if you're angry, it's important to deal with the angry in a, anger in a healthy way. Right. Right. To change the habits that were laid down. The earlier they are laid down, the more difficult it is to break it. Yeah. Exactly. Anything that you do habitually, you're more likely to do because the pathway is getting stronger. You're making more connections so that it's more likely to be triggered. Exactly. You know, we, as Ayakema said, we make ruts in our mind. Yeah, so if you're doing something that is unhealthy, it's hard to let it go. 
especially if it's generating some sort of pleasant vedana along the way. That's why it's hard to quit smoking or quit drinking or any of this. However, if you're doing something that is healthy and you do it on a regular basis, then it's easier to do it. If you meditate every day, it's a lot easier to meditate than if you meditate once a month. (laughs) You've set up the neural pathways, you sit down, yeah, you get concentrated. 